Welcome, everyone, to Dad Talk Live. I'm your host, Viz. I want to welcome everybody to the show. If you're joining us for the first time and want more information about our show, please visit us on the web at deadtalklive.com. want to welcome all our moderators, all of our viewers. Thank you to our moderators, and a big thank you to all of our viewers as well. Hope you could spend the next hour with us as we discuss all things horror. I want to say hello to Philip Thompson, who is first today on YouTube, at least when I turned it on. Also, Khaleesi is joining us. Viviana is with us on Facebook, as is Nina and Lisa. On the Instagram side, we have Marie, who is moderating. I Golden is joining us. Michael is with us. Uh, sorry, Joanne is also joining us. Welcome, everybody, on Instagram. You know, these late shows, uh, I do got to apologize. They've been very frequent recently, but it's been really, really busy. Today, I actually had a second internet service provider installed. Now, for the sheer purpose that our episodes are getting uploaded to a place that I'm still not allowed to say. <laughs> Hopefully, I'll be able to announce it soon, but I'm not yet able to say so we're uploading these big ass files. So I got a second internet provider, Fiber Optic, to where one episode before would take five to seven hours. Now I can send that same episode in 20 minutes. So it's, it's something that needed to be done. So I was working on that today. The installation it went pretty smooth. But, you know, a whole bunch of stuff had to happen afterwards. So my apologies for starting a little bit late again tonight. If you want to be a part of our live audience, please. We are on Monday through Friday, instantaneously and simultaneously streaming to YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and Twitch. You can catch us, like I said, Monday through Friday. Our normal start time is 9.30 p.m., sometimes 10 p.m. Always check YouTube as I have it scheduled hours before, and you can see exactly what time we are starting. And on all those networks, you can find us just by searching for Dead Talk Live. Uh, I want to welcome CC Weezy, who just joined us on uh, YouTube, as has Skippy TV. Lindsay Sparks is also with us from Canada. Welcome, Lindsay. Uh, sorry, Lindsay. Welcome, Lindsay. Sparks all the way from Canada. So we're going to be doing headlines. We haven't done headlines since uh, last Friday. Uh, we had our executive producer, Marco, on yesterday, co-hosting. We discussed Fear the Walking Dead. I thought it would be a good idea instead of me just uh, talking about it and then reading the articles for yesterday to have somebody to bounce ideas off of. And we got some interesting information about Morgan's Key possibly being a nuclear key, which I still find fascinating. Uh, I mean, how many times, at least in my mind, it's crossed my mind that a way to just kill everything is just to drop the bomb, right? And I'm like, well, they can't, you know, you know, that thing is secured away. God knows where the axis is. And lo and behold, uh, if that is the case, I'm really curious to see how the writers are going to make a group of civilian apocalyptic survivors be able to launch nuclear missiles. That is, uh, if I don't think it's even going to get that far, 
if it is the nuclear key, but I'm very curious to see how the writers are going to work that out. So anyway, since we did not get to read a review on the show that just uh, aired this past Sunday, we're going to do that today. We're going to do one review article to see what they had to say about the latest episode of Fear the Walking Dead, which of course was called The Holding. Morgan's group finally comes face to face with the Doomsday Cult on an excellent Fear the Walking Dead. Uh, after months of careful buildup that began back in season five, Fear of the Walking Dead finally brings the mysterious The End is the Beginning Doomsday Cult into focus. And um, I think Doomsday is a good word for it. Penned by Channing Powell, who has multiple The Walking Dead writing credits to her name, The Holding answers a lot of questions about this mysterious group. By the end, Alicia will even meet the cult's enigmatic leader, Teddy. But before the fateful encounter, Teddy, Teddy's underground paradise will go up in flames as demanded by a myriad of Walking Dead universe tropes and bylaws. I have to say, as far as post-apocalyptic doomsday cults go, the holding actually seems like a pretty nice place to write out the end of the world. Situated in a converted underground parking garage. And, you know, that, that's interesting because me and Marco discussed that yesterday and we were both not 100% sure if that really was a parking garage or some kind of a bunker or a fallout shelter. The group has everything it needs from electricity to water to an abundance of fresh game and produce. Seriously, this is the sort of self-sustaining utopia that Morgan aspires to with with his own fledgling settlement. Outsiders aren't allowed to bring weapons inside the holding either. Something new visitors Alicia West, Al, and Luciana learn from cult liaison Riley, of course played by Nick Stahl. Except our band of interlopers aren't visitors. Nope, in the cult's eyes, they're fresh recruits. Indeed, their jaded skepticism is actually welcomed. Because once cynics buy into Teddy's message, it means they are true converts to his circle of life teachings. And, you know, I gotta also say this. We have seen some villains throughout this universe, you know, Negan, the governor, really menacing names. And uh, now we just have Teddy. I mean, it's Teddy. How can somebody be, you know, named Teddy be a threat? I don't know about you guys, but when I think of Teddy, I'm thinking about a teddy bear. All right. Not this big uh, evil cult leader, but that is what's going on. What's interesting about the introduction of yet another zealous faction is not its predictably rotten underbelly. Rather, what's fascinating is that to the indoctrinated, their group is always in the right. Think about it. Whether they're following Teddy or following Virginia or Jeremiah Otto or Celia Flores, in the end, it is all the same. And that could be said for all three shows of the Walking Dead universe. After all, everyone is a hero in their own story, 
As the saying goes, Luciana has been here before, of course, except Alejandro leveraged a would-be miracle to build his walled-in La Colonia. Now, that's going back several seasons. Season three or two, I believe. Uh, despite their collective cynicism, Riley is still able to reach past their defenses to open up old wounds. Alicia, Luciana, Al, and Wes have each lost someone important to them. Until this episode, it never occurred to me that they each lost a sibling. That is very much true. In Wes's case, it's the loss that shapes Alicia's first encounter with him in Seasons 5, excellent, titled You're Still Here. As I said at the time, Colby Holm Holman's Wes was a welcome breath of fresh air and an antidote to the season's relentless, relentless altruism. He didn't need healing. He didn't want to be saved. Rather be inspired by Team Morgan's feel-good recruit, recruitment videos, he retreated further into his own skepticism. And why wouldn't he after losing his brother Derek early on in the apocalypse? In a season full of interesting twists and turns, revealing that Derek has actually been alive the whole time is quite a sucker punch. As embodied by uh, Shinaza Ush, I think I pronounced that correctly, whom you may know from Apple TV's uh, TV Plus's Dickinson, Derek is all warmth and brotherly love, but while his survival makes for an unexpected and tearful uh, reunion with his brother, it also raises a lot of questions for Wes, and the more he and Al and the rest of them continue to dig for answers, the more questions are raised in the process. Wes wants to believe the best of his brother, even in his doubts uh, continue to mount. And especially even as it becomes clear, Derek is responsible for sabotaging Tanktown. If you recall in this season's uh, episode titled Bury Her Next to Jasper's Leg, Wes was at the oil fields that day and was nearly killed by shrapnel. While not my favorite episode of the season, Jasper proves to be an important piece of the bigger puzzle that comprises uh, Teddy's doomsday cult. While the group may be underground, they have eyes and ears everywhere. So for Wes, it stands to reason that Derek must have known his brother was at Tanktown that day. And that is just cold. Uh, when Wes confronted him, that, you know, Wes figured out that they must have had people inside there relaying back information uh, to them and whatnot. And when he got that realization that even though Derek knew his brother was there, they still went ahead with the attack, that's just cold. That's your brother. And, you know, that bullshit line he gave him, if I knew you were there, I would have gotten you out. Total BS. Derek's reply, people are people is a chilling non-answer unless you remember that Wes himself said this to Alicia in You're Still Here as a way of explaining away the darker, predictable side of human nature. That Derek would offer his brother such non-committal platitude troubles 
less greatly. This is someone he idolized in life and lionized in death. As I said, his brother's very absence informed so much of Wes's worldview and not in a good way either. Wes has come such a long way since meeting Alicia and becoming part of Morgan's crew. He understands that people are capable of change, himself included. This lesson isn't mawisk, it's for, it, sorry, it isn't force, it's part of Wes's moral reawakening. If he can change, so can Derek. That is, if Wes can get his brother to stop chugging the Kool-Aid. Derek, though, though, is so firmly entrenched in Teddy's teachings, so fully invested in the destruction of the outside world, that he would kill his own brother. Unfortunately, as we have witnessed in the real world, conspiracy theories can poison minds and tear families apart. No joking on that. I'll admit, as Derek and Wes grappled over the gun, I really thought we'd be saying goodbye to Colby Holman this week, which would have been a shame as I really like Wes a lot, at least when he's given something to do. And let's just go back to that struggle between the two brothers. Was it me or did Derek actually get the gun pointing at Wes's face? He just didn't pull the trigger. To me, it looked like they, he got he got to drop on him, uh, but he didn't pull the trigger. And then that's when Wes lunged at him and pushed him up against the tree. And then, of course, the walker ate him, uh, bit out his uh, carotid artery, and he knew at that point he was going to be dead in seconds. But I don't know. To me, it seems like Derek did get the drop on Wes, but he did not pull the trigger, which makes him a coward. If he's willing to blow him up from, you know, a distance away, but yet not man enough to pull the trigger when he's standing right in front of him and they're struggling for a gun, he's a coward. Flat and simple. Uh, Khaleesi writes, yep, he did get the gun on him. Uh, so CeCe Weezy says the same. He did get the drop on him. He just couldn't do it. And that just proves what kind of a coward he is. He was willing to sacrifice his brother uh, from a distance, but when they're right there at point-blank range and he did get the drop on him, he couldn't do it. Wes did it, you know, and uh, even afterwards, he wasn't, it wasn't as emotional as when Rick stabbed Shane. If you guys remember that scene when Rick stabbed Shane, Rick lost it, you know? He was screaming at a dead Shane, telling him, you made me do this, you know, crying, you made me do this, uh, was not that emotional between Wes and Derek. Now, continuing on, this is also the point in the story where the holding's ugliness is finally brought to light. Not only are skeptics not welcome, they're secretly embalmed and chained up in a hidden room. I just don't understand why they're keeping them chained up in a room and bombed. That doesn't make any sense to me. Chopping them up into the grinder and feeding them back into the soil? Okay, that makes sense. They're decomposing bodies. They were actually very accurate in the way they explained that. 
But to take the living and whether it looks like they were alive when they were killed and then embalmed them and strap them hanging from the ceiling in a room all together, I just don't get the point of that. I really don't. I just don't see that. Anyway, Alicia chooses to stay behind while her friends escape so she can personally and single-handedly torch the place. It's not until we meet Teddy in the flesh, played by John Glover, that holding goes from a good episode to a great one. Uh, uh, Cece writes, would you eat Walker crops? Well, you know, they were right. I mean, the dead, the way the cycle of life works, they have a point, but would I want to eat soil that is directly chopped up from reanimated dead corpses that eat human flesh? No. No. I think that's where we draw the line. There are a lot of things that go on in Mother Nature that we sort of look the other way on. You know, I love a good steak. I don't want to know. I know where it comes from, but I don't want to see it happening. Anyway, it's not. Anyway, the show becomes a great one right when we get to meet Teddy. Hearing Teddy's recorded pronouncements piped endlessly through speakers is one thing. And talk about torture. Having to hear this guy's voice all day long, probably all night long as well. No wonder they're brainwashed. But John Glover commands the screen the moment he appears, looking every bit like the charismatic leader of a doomsday cult. Glover does wonders with the few minutes he has on screen, wielding, wielding words like weapons, cutting Alicia deeply with canny insights about her friends and her mother, Madison, as well. She may not want to admit it, but Alicia has met her match. Truly, Teddy is the villain that fear deserves. And it must be said, season six is steadily shaping up to be one of the show's best. And I said that after episode one, that this season was going to be something special. So, you know, uh, that's a great article. Sums up the uh, episode pretty nicely. Welcome to Summer who's just joined us on YouTube. Welcome to Megan, who uh, is just with us on Facebook. Jennifer and John Wesley are with us. Hey, guys. Haven't seen you in a while. It's good to have you back. So, the 10 best allegorical horror movies like Mother. Uh, Darren Aronofsky's Mother used allegory biblical motives to drive the story, Fans of the project will love these horror movies in the same vein. Now, Darren Aronofsky's movie, Mother, is a movie that, despite its positive reception from critics, divided audiences and even longtime Aronofsky fans. Nevertheless, the movie went on to become a box office success and even competed for the Golden Lion at the Venice International Film Festival. The point of contention uh, in discussion of Mother was always its allegorical story that used biblical motives to construct and drive the narrative. 
Some people loved it, while others weren't very fond of it. But the good news is that there are other allegorical horror movies to check out that can be com comparable as good or even better than Mother in this regard. How many of you guys have actually seen Mother? It's a pretty... Uh, I don't know what the right word to describe it, but you gotta have a a taste for that kind of movie. I, th I thought it was good. Anyway, number 10, The Neon Demon, available on uh, Amazon Prime and Hoopla, 2016. Uh, number 9 is Antichrist, uh, available on the Criterion Channel, AMC Plus, and DirecTV. Now, this is an interesting movie. It's been a while. I have not thought of this movie in so long. But this was a good movie, and it's 22 years old. Uh, Lars von Trier's Antichrist is yet another work of an author that divided both critics and regular viewers largely due to its violence and explicit scenes. Yet back in its home country of Denmark, the movie was a critical success with many noting its visual and allegorical elements. A couple that has recently lost their child decides to spend some time in a secluded cabin in the woods as they try to fix their relationship. The man starts seeing strange visions while the woman displays violent sexual behavior. This was a very good movie and I have totally forgotten about it. Uh, Seeing it on this list brings back a lot of memories, and it's definitely a it's definitely worth rewatching, uh, for me at least. I'm gonna probably rewatch it again. Now this next movie, I know a lot of you guys have not seen this movie. It's a movie that got almost no attention. I have spoke about this movie several times on this show, and even mentioned it to several of our guests. It's called The House That Jack Built starring Matt Dillon. And if you want to see a movie where it is really, not, you know, very detailed, oriented, and explains the mind of a psychopath, this is the movie you have to watch. It is an artsy-type movie, uh, especially how the story is told. But Matt Dillon does play a psychopath. Uh... And, of course, he starts killing people. But the, there's one scene in the house that Jack built that I think is absolutely fascinating. Uh, and he really goes into the mind of a psychopath. He is standing in front of a bathroom mirror. And around the bathroom mirror, he has cut out pictures of people displaying different emotions. Because true psychopaths, don't know what it's like to be afraid. They don't know what... It, they have no empathy, no sympathy. Um, they don't have the ability to be hurt uh, emotionally. Any of that. That part of the brain is just dark. So you see Matt Dillon, who plays Jack, standing in front of the mirror, looking at all these different pictures and learning how to emulate these emotions. So when he's out in public, it's not, you know, noticeable. Or it's not a big tip-off that there's something off with this guy. Very fascinating movie. I really recommend you guys watch it. It is available on Hulu 
AMC Plus, and DirecTV. Number seven, another movie that has definitely gotten great attention, The Babadook, uh, available on AMC Plus and DirecTV. The Australian psychological horror movie, The Babadook, was written and directed by Jennifer Kent in her feature debut. The movie has often been regarded as a metaphor for mental illness. A single mother struggles to raise her sensitive child who is particularly afraid of monsters. But what's even worse is that the book she reads to her son, who is a penimous antagonist, unexpectedly manifests itself in real life right in their home. Next is Annihilation on FX, 2018. The Witch, uh, 2015. This movie has been rated, I've seen it even in the top 10 best all-time horror movies. It was a great movie. I don't know if it would make my top 10 of best horror movies of all time. Uh, Let's see, number four, The Killing of a Sacred Deer. Netflix, Canopy and Hoopla, 2017. Midsommar, again, this is a great movie. It's a very slow burn type movie. Uh, Ari Aster is uh, behind this one. I don't know what to say about this movie. I enjoyed it. It's not the kind of movie where you start it and you just get so bored, you just don't finish watching it. It's going to keep you engaged straight through to the end. But then at the end of the movie, when it is all said and done with, you're going to be asking yourself a lot of questions. And that's the whole point of the movie, honestly. Uh, But I would definitely recommend you watch it. It's definitely an art house, artsy type film. And it leaves uh, for the viewer themselves to come up with their own interpretation of it. So let's see what's number two. The Lighthouse, 2019, and the number one movie, The Others. Wow, this is going a little back with Nicole Kidman. I love this movie, and I'm going to spoil it for you for those who have not watched it. This is a reverse haunting movie, sort of similar to The Sixth Sense, where Bruce Willis didn't know that he was dead and a ghost throughout the whole movie. That's, uh, this came out soon after The Sixth Sense. The Sixth Sense was so popular, of course, other films try to imitate it. This one did a pretty good job. It stars Nicole Kidman and two of her children. They're living in this house, and they, the house is, is haunted, uh, you know, and they're trying to figure out what's going on. And it's not until the end of the movie that you find out that Nicole Kidman and her children are the ghosts. Okay, the house is haunted, but it's haunted by them. Uh, It's a great plot twist. And not only that, Nicole Kidman, I'm going to definitely spoil it for you now, is the one that killed her children and herself. So, even though, if you haven't watched it, even though I just completely spoiled it for you, uh, it's, it's definitely worth watching. You're going to love it. Anyway, now I saw this headline and I'm like, all right, every unmade Tom Cruise horror movie. All right. Now he's done a few, you know, interview with a vampire is probably the most prominent one. 
the mummy you can put in the horror i guess genre even though it's a way more of an action flick but other than that i don't i don't remember tom cruise in that many horror movies tom cruise may be a blockbuster staple but the movie star has a slew of canceled horror projects to his name and some of these unmade movies sounded promising since Tony Scott's classic Top Gun arrived in cinemas in 1986, Tom Cruise has been an almost unstoppable force at the box office, starring in a string of successful blockbusters. That said, this star power isn't completely beyond reproach. One of Cruise's few flops came with a rare foray the actor made into horror, with 2017's critically panned The Mummy. Did not get great reviews. It was a so-so movie. It was an action flick. Anyway, despite his many big screen successes, Cruz has starred in a few horror projects. 1994's Interview with a Vampire is the only horror movie on the actor's uh, CV outside of The Mummy. And even that hit barely counts as a scary movie. However, despite what fans of the actor might guess, this is not due to a lack of trying on Cruz's part. Cruz is always searching for another successful franchise. And I would say without a doubt, his most successful franchise is the Mission Impossible movies. And throughout his decades of screen stardom, he has attempted to get numerous horror movies off the ground with each project being cancelled for one reason or another. Possibly the most famous of Cruz's cancelled projects, the Antarctica set horror called At the Mountains of Madness, would have seen the actor play the protagonist of this unfilmable Lovecraft adaptation. The story follows a set of doomed explorers who uncover dark secrets beneath the ice of Antarctica and was set to begin filming in 2011 after Del Toro had spent six years attempting to get the movie off the ground. However, despite John Carpenter's Antarctic body of horror classic The Thing, received a remake that same year, the studio balked at the thought of the movie's lack of love of a love story, unhappy ending, and R rating. Anyway, leading to the cancellation of the movie. So let me get this straight. They had Tom Cruise, everybody lined up to do this movie, and the studio canceled it, because the remake of The Thing, which was nowhere near as popular as the original, and the original was not very popular at all when it first came out, uh, it did not have a love story. It was also had an unhappy ending, and it was R-rated. Well, I don't know what the studio was, but I guess they don't know the nature of horror movies. Uh, I Am Legend... This was not strictly, this may not strictly count as an unmade horror movie 
since director Francis Lawrence did eventually adopt author Richard Matheson's seminal vampire novel, I Am Legend, in 2007, complete with an underrated Will Smith performance. However, a much earlier take on I Am Legend was being shopped around Hollywood in the late 90s, and the Mission Impossible franchise star was a contender for the role. Cruz was considered for the part of a lonely apocalypse survivor alongside fellow big names like Harrison Ford and Michael Douglas. But the Terminator himself, Arnie, eventually got the role before this version of the movie was vetoed. Ooh, can you imagine Arnold Schwarzenegger playing Will Smith's role in I Am Legend? Uh, I, I think that was a good decision there. I liked Will Smith in I Am Legend. I'm, I like that movie. I'm glad they left that as it is. After the success of 1994's Interview with a Vampire, Helmer Neil Jordan had ambitious plans for a follow-up to his Cruise collaboration. And all of you who have watched uh, Interview with a Vampire, you know exactly that the way the movie ended they totally set it up for a sequel that just never happened. Um, per a Talkhouse interview with the Irish director, I was commissioned to write a sequel based on Anne Rice's sequel novel. I wrote it and I had a lot of fun in, the in 17th century France. The idea had potential, but unfortunately Cruz had no interest in reviving the role. And I've also spoken about this in the past. There were rumors that just him and Brad Pitt did not get along too well on the set. Meaning viewers missed out on the sight of Lestat witnessing the revolution or turning his ale mother into a vampire on her deathbed. The sequel was canned and it took the likes of True Blood to reignite interest in quote-unquote sexy vampires about a decade later. I liked Interview with a Vampire. I thought Tom Cruise was okay in it. I just think Tom Cruise is just not a horror actor. He's a great actor. I just don't think horror is his realm. I just, you know, he tried it. The closest he's got was uh, Interview with a Vampire. And the movie was great, but it was not because of Tom Cruise. He did a good job, but the movie was great in spite of Tom Cruise. That's how I would put it. Uh, Khaleesi writes, Lestat was my favorite. Uh, you know, and uh, AMC is reviving the Vampire Chronicles. So we're going to be probably seeing Lestat on AMC. Now that was announced last year. And haven't heard much about it ever since. Are they filming it? Has it been scratched? I have no idea. Uh, less of a full-blown horror and more of a supernatural thriller, Selling Time was another project that was attached to Will Smith, as well as Cruz at one point. According to the British movie magazine Empire in 2006, Selling Time saw its protagonist selling off parts of his of his life in exchange for the chance to relive his worst day 
seemingly a trippy combination of Repo Man with Cruz's own Edge of Tomorrow. It's a shame viewers never got to see this strange Tom Cruise movie brought to life. So there you guys have it. Uh, some of the horror movies that were never made, some that were made involving Tom Cruise. Lindsay writes, yep, I agree with you about Interview with a Vampire, as does uh, Khaleesi. Uh, Khaleesi also writes, when I saw my favorite, my favorite movie Tom ever did for me. Uh, for me, my I really like him in the Mission Impossible movies. I am a Mission Impossible fan. Right, so I'm, I think he's a great actor. Uh, Carol asks... <laughs> Uh, is uh, with us on uh, Instagram saying Tom is a fabulous actor. He is. He really is. You, you know, you can't take that away from him. Uh, nine of the creepiest horror movie nuns of all time. Nine of them. And uh, I think it's true. Nuns scare me. <laughs> uh, I don't know why. It's like creepy clown dolls. Especially demonic nuns like we got to see in the conjuring universe the release of evan spiliotopoulos the unholy marked the big screen return of the age-old theological horror subgenre one subset of the religious horror realm includes a wide array of non-spoliation is non-spoliation fair movies that subvert the notion of benevolent nuns and turn them into horror villains, often possessed by an evil demonic force of some kind. While cinematic nuns have been around since the 1920s, the nunspoliation subgenre uh, proliferated in the 1970s with movies from Spain, Italy, Germany, as well as the United States, with lots of options to choose from, here are the all-time creepiest horror movie nuns. Number nine is Sister Flavia uh, from the movie The Heretic, 1974. Mother Superior, Dark Waters, 1993. Sister Death, Veronica was the character, 2017. Number six is Valak, the nun. From the Conjuring Universe, 2018. Uh, number five, Another Mother Superior, The Transgressor, again, 1974. Mother Vicenza, Vicenza, The Other Hell, 1981. Number three is Sister Gertrude, The Killer Nun. Number two is Sister Jean, The Devils, 1971. And the number one is Nun Haxon, 1922. There's a movie here. Uh, I don't know if it belongs here on this list or not. It's a very, it's a movie, again, you guys probably have not heard of. It's available, I believe, on Hulu. I believe it's on Hulu. It's called Welcome to Mercy. Uh it does involve a monastery and several nuns. There are several creepy nuns in there. That's a great story. I'm not going to spoil that one for you, but it gives you a different perspective when it comes to possession. The movie is called Welcome to Mercy, and I definitely recommend it. 
Khaleesi writes, Valak should be number one. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was... If they wanted to make a scary demonic nun, I don't see him getting much more scarier than the nun in the Conjuring universe. The most sympathetic character for Merry American Horror Story season ranked. Now, we all know how much Screen Rant loves to rank shows, movies, and characters. They're doing the most sympathetic ones. Number nine, Murder House, Vivian Harmon. Yeah, I would put her closer to the top instead of number nine. Number eight, Asylum, Kit Walker, played by Peter Evans. Number seven, Coven, Cordelia Fox. Yeah, okay, I could see that in Coven. She was Jessica Lang's daughter, always beaten down by her, and it wasn't until Jessica Lang was out of the way that Cordelia really stepped into her own light. So I can see that. Number six, Freak Show, Ethel Darling, played by Kathy Bates. Hotel, Liz Taylor, loved that character. Number four, Roanoke, Audrey Tyndall, again, Sarah Paulson. Number three, Cult, Winter Anderson. Yeah, she was great. She was great in that one. Number two, Apocalypse, Mallory, definitely. And number one, 1984, Brooke Thompson. Ooh, I don't agree with that. I know I'm very against uh, American Horror Story 1984. It's my least favorite season of AHS. Trying to bring back the 19, the late 70s, early slasher flicks where camp counselors got hacked up by people and by killers in hockey masks. I just did not want to relive that again. I think it's just past its time. But making Brooke Thompson the most sympathetic character of all time on American Horror Story? Nah. Sorry, gotta disagree with that one. What you never noticed about Chloe Grace Moretz horror movies. And we read an article about Chloe, was it last week or the week before, on how she's done so many horror movies and she's been acting since six Chloe started acting at the tender age of six and first gained recognition for her role as Chelsea Lutz in the 2005 remake version of the Amityville Horror. Since then, she's been in tons of movies like 500 Days of Summer, Kick-Ass, and If I Stay, and guest starred on TV shows like 30 Rock. Her natural acting abilities have also won her plenty of accolades including the Young Hollywood Actor Award for Fan Favorite Female Actor, a CinemaCon Award for Female Star of Tomorrow, and multiple Breakthrough Artist Awards. She's also ventured into producing, and she's even campaigned for Hillary Clinton in 2016, so showing that she's truly capable of anything. While Moret's acting credits span everything from romantic dramas to black comedy superhero flicks, some of her movies have similarities that aren't always easy to pick out at first glance. When it comes to the horror movies she's been in, 
the majority of them share an interesting feature that only true horror buffs may have noticed. Uh, Moret's breakout role in the Amityville Horror uh, was a remake of the 1979 Supernatural film. Of course, we all know about the Amityville Horror. She had a small role in The Eye, starring Jessica Alba, which was based on the original film done in Hong Kong. She starred in 2010 vampire film Let Me In, based on 2007's Let the Right One In. In 2012, she was in Tim Burton's remake of the soap opera Dark Shadows. She received praise for her role in the 2013 remake of the film Carrie. And, you know, nothing's going to come close to the original Carrie. But Chloe, she was great as the role of Carrie. The only thing that I would put a knock, I guess, on Chloe playing the role of Carrie was she's such a pretty young woman that to make her seem as this uh, oddball out the way Sissy Spacek portrayed it back then and just was the best pick they could have ever picked to play the original Carrie, that would be the only knock that I would have on that remake. And most recently, in 2018, she appeared in the remake of the 1977 supernatural horror film Suspiria, which has also divided audiences in the amount of gore that's in that one. In an interview with Collider, Moretz described how important it was for her to create an entirely new version of Carrie rather than simply recreate the original. Well, what I definitely wanted to not do is to steal what Sissy Spacek did, because I think what she did was amazing and iconic, and everyone knows the typical handouts. Eyes open look. My main thing about this film was building my own Carrie, and she's not what Sissy did. She's not what Brian De Palma made Carrie to be. It's what Kim and I have constructed to be. It's what Kim and I have constructed to be this being, what we have made into this living, breathing human. As John Squires of Bloody Disgusting so eloquently tweeted, the Amityville Horror, the Eye, Let Me In, Carrie, now Suspiria, Chloe Grace Moretz is officially the first true horror remake screen queen that's a compliment that's definitely a compliment right there let's see silviana is joining us from argentina welcome silviana uh lisa wilhelm right, writes sissy spacek was better for carrie she was the perfect pick for carrie uh i mean i can't think of anybody else doing that role uh back then and it was such a great horror movie uh, one of Stephen King's best adaptations. So let's see if we can get through these ads. All right. A creepy horror movie is blowing up Netflix. And what's up with all these articles recently about horror movies dividing Netflix, horror movies blowing up Netflix? Anyway, J.J. Abrams' Bad Robot has its fingers in many pies, including some of the biggest 
franchises in Hollywood like Star Wars and Mission Impossible, but the outfit has always had a reputation for giving lesser-known filmmakers the platform to craft unique and exciting smaller-scale genre picks. It's a, pract it's a practice that dates back to Matt Reeves' Cloverfield, which was just the third feature film to bear the bad robot branding, and continued on with Maya Forbes' drama Infinitely Polar Bear, Ten Cloverfield Lane, The Cloverfield Paradox, which a lot of people did not like, I personally enjoyed it, which took the titular series into the realms of the claustrophobic thriller and sci-fi, respectively. Arguably the best of Bad Robot's B-tier efforts, though, is Julius Avery's Overlord, which could be described as what would have happened if 19-era John Carpenter had made a World War II film. That's interesting. A squad of American paratroopers are dropped behind enemy lines to try and destroy a radio transmitter to aid the war effort. But the sooner the sorry, but they soon discover that the Nazis have been running some gruesome experiments. Overlord begins like a standard war epic with a hell of an opening sequence before pivoting further and further into horror as the story progresses, culminating in a grisly third act that doesn't skimp on the gore. Unfortunately, it disappointed at the box office after earning just $41 million against a $38 million budget, despite strong reviews. Hey, it at least broke even and even made a little bit of a profit. But it's finding a new life on Netflix, after crashing into the top 10 out of nowhere. At the time of writing, Overlord is currently the seventh most watched movie in the streaming services library around the world, and it's definitely worth checking out if you're a fan of the horror genre or simply wild cinematic mashups in general. I remember this movie when it was coming out on the theaters. It got its it, they definitely did not skimp on the marketing. Uh, I have not seen it. I have not seen it. I So I can't say one way or the other on this movie. Maybe I'll watch it. Maybe I won't. There's a lot of stuff in my queue. But maybe I'll check it out. Never know. So let's see. Eight. We're almost out of time. we got several articles to go. Eight new horror TV shows and movies to watch in May 2021. Let's just go through this list. Fried Berry. Okay. Uh, the Reckoning. Blending the fears of a plague with the fears of unjust persecution. The Reckoning is a period drama about a wife being accused of witchcraft after the death of her husband. On top of the torture England's most ruthless witch hunter puts her through, this woman also deals with the devil himself. While the film premiered already at Fantasia Film Festival, it's soon to be available to the wider public on Shudder. Now this sounds something that I may want to watch. It's directed and co-written by Neil Marshall. Let's see, what else is on the list? Castlevania. 
Uh, oh, yeah, Haunted Season 3 is coming out May 14th. I don't know if you guys watch uh, the Haunted uh, series on uh, Netflix. They also have come out with Haunted Latin America. It's, uh, it's, it's an unscripted show. I love how they have it set up. A person uh, comes into a room, and usually it's the closest members of their family and friends, and that person reveals to them in full detail their ghost experience. And it's not just an, a single experience. It's something for a lot of them that is still haunting them to this day. I love it. I love this series. Uh, I'm a big fan of ghost shows anyways. Reality show ghost shows. I'll admit it. You know, some a lot of people think they're cheesy, fake. I enjoy watching them. But Haunted, it just, it's a, the way it's filmed, I think it's a, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's a nice living room setting. The, the, the recreation of some of the ghost scenes is very nicely done. It's short. It's like 30-minute episodes. Some are a little bit longer. Uh, but there's two seasons already available on Netflix. Season 3 is being released May 14th. And there is also a Haunted Latin America. And I just finished watching that just a couple of weeks ago. And I love that one as well. So definitely worth to check out next spiral the uh from the book of saw this is the continuation of the saw universe um slightly done a little differently don't know much about the story the saw franchise is iconic to say the least spawning eight movies since 2004 now a ninth film enters the saga this time following the detectives trying to solve a new string of murders that eerily feel reminiscent of those associated with the killer Jigsaw. The franchise is known for its torture and gore, but this time the series is giving the property a crime thriller twist that feels right at home with films like Zodiac and Seven. It is directed by Darren Lynn Bousman, uh, I'm I'm looking forward to watching this, without a doubt. Uh, let's see, Psycho Gorman is also on the list. Army of the Dead. Uh, okay, A Quiet Place Part 2. This is also being released very soon. That, I, a lot of people are looking forward to this. And that's it. That's the end of the list. And we are pretty much out of time. Let me just go through the, I think I only have two articles left or so, just some of the headlines. Uh, let's see, get through these ads. There's five raising historical horror novels, maybe another time. Netflix horror movie, horror film inspired by New York Axe Murder. Uh, we still say Grace Review. That's the name of the movie. We still say Grace Religious Horror strays from the path of credibility. So, obviously, they give this only two out of five stars. So, obviously, they didn't like it. Anyway, guys, thank you so much for tuning in. This hour flies by, as it always does. For more information on our show, please visit our website at deadtalklive.com. 
You can see all of our upcoming guests, prior guests, all of our announcements, and so much more. If you want to be a part of our live audience, you can catch us Monday through Friday evening, Eastern Time, United States, on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, Twitch, and Twitter. I'll be back on the air again tomorrow night. I hope everyone has a great night. And until tomorrow night, guys, stay safe and always stay walking. Good night.